Good evening. Welcome back to Mentors on Fire podcast. We've got Mike Benson tonight joining us as our guest host. And our guest tonight is Ren Kalb, Lawrence Kalb, goes by Ren. How are you doing tonight, Ren? I'm doing good. Thank you, Mike. Fantastic. Uh, Ren and I go back. How many years do we go back, Ren? Oh. 1999, 2000? Yeah, because we, yeah. Probably at least 2000. So pretty good ways. Uh, a little bit about Ren. He began his fire career as a volunteer in Virginia Beach. He was hired as a career firefighter working for Norfolk Naval Base in 1997. And then he got hired with Norfolk Fire Rescue in 1999. In addition to the many things that he was able to accomplish in that time, uh, his final assignment was battalion chief for logistics, where he um, served until he retired in December of 2022. So you're just over a year retired. Yeah. Yep. How's yep. it feel? It looks yeah, like it's it treating well. I just got off probation for my next job. So <laughs> it looks like that was the last time you cut your hair was in December of 2022. <laughs> uh, let's see. We, some of the things uh, as far as education goes. Uh, Master of Science degree in leadership. Yes. And you are a graduate of the National Fire Academy's Executive Fire Officer Program. Yes. So, Ren and I actually met uh, not in the fire service. We met in the Navy. We both served in the Navy. Uh, you have an extensive background in the Navy that we're going to get to, I'm, I'm sure. At least I hope uh, we'll get to that. Um, but I remember in... 2011, we had our 10-year anniversary of our deployment, and we were talking to each other shortly thereafter, and uh, I told you that I was starting the, the EFO program in the summer, and you said, well, that's funny, because so am I. So we reconnected 10 years later, and uh, that was really the catalyst that, that kept the friendship going, and, and I know that we both expressed how happy we are about that. So um, I'm glad to have you here, buddy. I really am. Thank you. So before I go any further, let me thank the sponsor of this podcast because I keep forgetting to do that. Command Consulting LLC, solutions that work. Command Consulting provides uh, electrification services, emergency services, including professional development programs, grant assistance, and shared services. And the hot topic for 2024, we talked about this last week. You weren't here, Mike. we got to update that. It's a hot topic for 2024 is electrification and microgrids, uh, where if you are operating electric vehicles, EVs, uh, these are the people to go to. They have the answers that you need. They can tell you the questions that you haven't even thought to ask. So reach out to Command Consulting LLC. Uh, for any of those services, and we appreciate their sponsorship for the podcast. Ren, do you know anything about electric vehicles? I do not. Um, as as I was finishing up my career, uh, a couple of the manufacturers were starting to come out with some electric vehicles. Uh, uh, some of them were both, I, I don't think they were referring to them as hybrids, but they were both diesel and electric. Um, but we really didn't start looking at that too hard uh, when I was still there. 
yeah, we uh, the big the big technological uh, advancement in my fire department was that we put air conditioning in the fire apparatus after uh, after a certain person retired. Believe it or not, so, just rolled down the window. Come on. Well, that's what they that was what they said. They said if we put air conditioning in, the people won't get out. And it said it's funny because we managed to get out in the winter when there's heat inside. <laughs> Either way, I digress. So, Ren, talk to us about where you are now, and then we'll work backwards. What are you doing today? You're so, retired. You're growing your hair out. You look fantastic. What are you, you doing day to day? Uh, so, um, when I was still in the fire service, I was getting close to being able to have my full pension. And so I started thinking, hey, what can I do after the fire service? Uh, so I thought logistics might be a good uh, good experience to get under my belt. Uh, it was very challenging, a lot harder than I expected. When I asked the fire chief uh, if I could go to logistics, he looked at me and said, you're the last person I expected to to ask, but why? And and I and I told him uh, that I wanted to set myself up for another career, um, and I I thought it would be challenging. His response was, "It's the hardest job for a battalion chief in our department." Um, I did, I thought he was just blowing smoke, uh, but it really was hard. Um, the battalion chief in Norfolk uh, is responsible for purchasing apparatus maintenance of apparatus through the city garage, but still uh, overseeing all of that, uh, going through the complete process of purchasing uh, building and uh, specking it out, which there's so much to that, and experience is extremely helpful in that. Um, I, luckily, I had some really good uh, co-members of our of our committee that had experience from volunteers or previous purchases. Um, also within logistics, we manage all the fire stations as far as maintenance, uh, working through the city again. And that was very challenging. You would think it'd be easy to just say, Hey, our air conditioner broke. Can you come fix it? But there's a lot that goes into that within the city and, and their budgets and all that. Um, Purchasing supplies for the stations, purchasing supplies for EMS, that's huge. The, the turnover rate, the on-the-shelf expiration uh, is a huge challenge within that. Um, and then uniforms. Uh, when, when I got to our logistics office, there was close to $10,000 worth of dress coats. Um, and I remember saying that. Yeah, so somebody would come in and they would, hey, I've gained some weight, I got promoted, whatever. The coat would go on the shelf and then they'd order a new one for $300. So uh, I had some challenges there. The fire chief wanted me to, he, he gave me two marching orders. Hey, I, I want a barcode tracking system for EMS. So we can start paying attention and maybe circulate uh, some of these EMS supplies to our busier stations before they expire. And he liked tracking of downtime of apparatus within uh, the organization. His thing was he wanted to 
have data to go after more apparatus, update our apparatus based on the maintenance requirements, and he wanted to increase our medical supply budget uh, based on what our turnover rate was and burn rate for expiration. So, uh, so it was very challenging. Uh, I was there just over two years, and I got offered a job within the government to do logistics, lo and behold. So I went ahead and uh, put my paperwork in, and I've been doing that since. I work as a program analyst for the government. Um, one of the local bases here, uh, a group, uh, a command will put in a request for a specific item. There's some documents that they have to have. And I review all those documents, I help them through the process, and then I follow those as they go on to finance and contracting officers to be uh, purchased by the government and then come back to the original customer. So I like it. It's, it's, it's fun. Uh, the people I work with are wonderful. Uh, so I got a, a third career now. That's fantastic. I'm looking at... Uh... So many information in front of me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your first staff assignment was OPS, right? Office of Professional Standards? Yes. My first staff assignment, um, I made captain. And um, when I made captain, uh, I had, again, so in, in, in Norfolk, it was pretty well understood that at certain benchmarks within your career, you should go do an administrative assignment. And right. if, if you don't, it could potentially stymie your promotion. So I kind of figured once I made captain, I hadn't been in administration at all. Uh, now was the time to go. So I, I asked if I could go to the OPS position because it, one, I got to go through all the fire marshal training, right? Uh, which I found to be very interesting. Uh, two, I worked directly for the fire chief and uh, I had the, I ended up being in, in an OPS for three different times under two different fire chiefs. And it, and it was really interesting because as a captain, um, I got to see behind the curtain a lot. The Both fire chiefs that I worked for were very good mentors to me. And, you know, not in front of other people, but uh, we would be in a meeting where they discuss something, the executive staff. And then afterwards, the fire chief would look at me and say, you got any questions? And I'd say, yeah, why did you make this decision? And they were, both of them, neither one of them were offended by me asking. They, they understood. I was just trying to understand their train of thought and what questions they asked themselves internally to come to the, the decisions they made, which for me was, as a young captain, um, it was very helpful, I thought, in preparing me for making decisions in the future. Agreed. I can see the value in that. Go ahead, Mike. One of the things that you have already made me start thinking about is your average line firefighter does not consider the value of the behind-the-scenes work that makes them be successful. The fact that they have the tools that they need, that they have the turnout gear that they need, the SCBAs are all in shape and know what they're doing. The truck works all the time. They don't even think about that as part of the system. So you were one of the unsung heroes of the fire service, and people blow this off. You're just run-of-the-mill average firefighter. Usually the ones who don't test well for promotion are the ones who don't think about all of the stuff behind the scenes that are integral or absolutely necessary 
for a successful fire service. And I want to you know, laud you for not only wanting to do that and recognizing the value, but taking advantage of that opportunity to get mentorship while you're there. That obviously was why you had a successful career. Uh, this is one of the reasons we wanted to do this program is to let people know, find mentors where they are, not necessarily where you want them to be and learn what you can from the places that you're at, where your boots are is where you need to learn uh, and figure out all that stuff out until you become that expert, then go become the next pe- expert in the next part of the fire service. But yeah, it's very impressive to hear somebody talk about how important behind the scenes. It's almost like leading from behind or leading from below where you actually lift everybody else up. So I was really proud to hear that and uh, or glad to hear that and proud of the, what you did in, in those roles, let alone all the rest of the stuff you did. Thank you. So give us an idea, Ren, how, uh, what is uh, Norfolk Fire Rescue, what is the size of the department? So uh, roughly 500 sworn personnel, uh, 14 fire stations, uh, 14 engine companies, seven ladder companies, two heavy rescue. And at the time I left, I think we had just gotten to 14 ambulances. Uh, our, our program, our, our model is uh, we, we ride with a paramedic and a EMT enhanced uh, on the ambulance. Uh, and typically, the two people on the ambulance during the day at 7 o'clock at night, our shift is 7 to 7. At 7 o'clock at night, uh, the two guys or girls on the engine get off, and the two on the medics get on. And by doing it that way, typically, and we run four-person engines, three-person ladders, and three-person heavy rescues, two-person medics. Uh, by doing that model, when the paramedic is not on the ambulance, the paramedic is normally on the engine. Uh, so... Uh, we have paid operators and captains are on our engines. Uh, lieutenants are on our ladder trucks and lieutenants are on our heavy rescue. I believe they just switched to one of the rescues has a, a captain on it. But, but typically that's our model. Um, there is a lot of EMS paramedic ALS level coverage in our city. It is not uncommon. Uh, a station that has a medic, an engine, and a ladder to at least have one paramedic on every piece of apparatus. Uh, we've been very fortunate in that. So 500 is a lot of people. You can get a lot of stuff done with a department that size. But at, at the same time, I'm thinking kind of to, to Mike's point before, to, to have a, a position of Office of Professional Standards logistics, you know, to have a uniform position. What what was your role as uh, the Office of Professional Standards? What, what did that encompass? Okay, so um, its its main function was to investigate administrative uh, administrative investigations started by the fire chief. So uh, if a individual gets a DUI, if the individual has a domestic uh, 
firearm violation, um, uh, citizen complaints that, that rise to the level that the fire chief thought an administrative investigation needed to happen. So that was the primary role. But I'm here to tell you, even in our department of 500, um, there were plenty of times when there was no work. Uh, so when there wasn't work, uh, I, and that's a good thing, um, I was tasked with any special projects the fire chief wanted uh, me to work on. Majority of those were policy reviews. So he might give me a policy and say, hey, we need to have a fraternization policy. I don't know what it wants, what, what it needs to say, or, but I want to make sure it says this, and I want to make sure it says this, and oh yeah, don't forget to put this in there. But I don't know other than that, but I want you to bring me something. So... Uh, I got to put a plug in here uh, for the National Fire Academy. Normally what I would do is I would get on all, at that point I hadn't finished the program, but I had one or two years in the, in the program, or maybe three. I would go back to the three rosters or the two rosters and I'd shoot out emails to all my friends from EFO and I'd say, hey, anybody have a fraternization policy? Anybody have a line of duty death policy? Anybody have this policy? And And I would get inundated with other departments' policies, and I would pick and choose and and uh, uh, pull information from, put something together, and then I would brief the fire chief on it, and he would say, you just went the wrong direction, or no, I like this direction. So, um, so a lot of times that was going on, and then um, other than that, um, any citizen complaint that came in, they would start uh, by coming through me. They would come to me, uh, I would brief the fire chief on it, and then he would make a decision, does this need to go to our assistant chiefs? Our, we had four assistant chiefs over the three shifts and admin, so he may assign it to a shift commander, assistant chief, uh, or he may assign it to the Office of Professional Standards. Um, so based on that, um, that's how I would get some some assignments. And this was an office of one? Yes, office of one, working out of the fire marshal's office. Um, we had, at the time, we had a fire marshal that was a battalion chief level. We had a deputy fire marshal that is the equivalent to a captain in our department. And we had three um, assistant fire marshals and then 12 firefighters that were trained up to either inspector or inspector and investigator. Now, if I, my memory serves me right, you had to go through the police academy. Is that correct? No, I got to go through the police academy. Uh, I, I got to go through the Virginia State Fire Marshals Academy. Uh, it was a wonderful experience uh, run by state police right. uh, who also had fire investigative experience. Uh, so 10-week program. You know, first we did the National Fire Academy's 1033. Right. Uh, and then once that was done, we could uh, go into one of the, I think they were only doing one academy a year for the region. And it was made up of people from all over the state. So, Mike Benton, one of the things that you have to know about Ren, <clears throat> if anybody's going to land on their feet, it's going to be right. He's like a cat. Like you could throw him out the window and he's going to land. He's going to look good doing it. So 
one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you. Let let's let's go back to the beginning because I think your story is compelling. We met in 1999 ish, I believe, but your uh, I guess your professional career started in 91 with the Navy, right? Yes. Yeah. So you know. what? What take us back to 1991? Okay. What was your motivation to to join the United States Navy? Oh, uh, well, I was living at home with my parents. I was 21, 22 ish. Where was home? Home was uh, Virginia, Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, my parents were both uh, local police officers. Uh, oh, my, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So my mother and my stepfather were both Virginia Beach police officers, which is funny because I'm going to go ahead and jump to this now. <laughs> After my first five years in the Navy, I was going to get out and join the reserve. And I thought, gosh, I don't want to I don't know what I want to do. I might as well be a cop until I figure out what I'm going to do. And my mother was like, don't be a cop. Everybody hates us. Be a fireman. They love them. And so that is actually what got me interested in the fire service. But So we're... 22 episodes in and somebody finally said would you we wanted somebody else to say it <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't want to be the ones to say yeah. it. anyway I, I got it. basically saying so, you took the right test is what we're saying yes yeah. right. well, yes <laughs> yes so nothing against um, my law enforcement brothers and sisters we love you all but you took yes, the wrong test <laughs> yes um, so um, so anyways I'm kind of floundering around I messed with college a little bit. And I figured, you know what, I'm I'm going to look into this. So, uh, I mean, you're sure in in Virginia Beach, that area. For those of you who are not familiar, it's like the hub for the Navy. Yes, right. There's a there, lot. Yeah, there's I, a lot of Navy stuff happening in that area. It is the yes, it is probably the biggest and largest. I think Norfolk Naval Base is the largest military naval base. Uh, right. So. Um, so I was working for Eastern Airlines at the time and going to school, hit or, hit or miss. Uh, and I went in to work on, let's see. So I'm sorry. I went to MEPS on a Wednesday. They kept me Thursday. Those were my two days off from the airline. And lo and behold, I joined. Uh, what were you doing for the Eastern Airlines? So I was a ramp agent. I was loading and unloading bags. Uh, I worked as a uh, baggage claim. So if your bag got lost, I got I learned how to get yelled at by people uh, <laughs> for something I had nothing to do with. There's plenty uh, of value in that. Yes, actually, there is a lot of value in learning how to deal with with uh, angry, disgruntled uh, uh, citizens. Uh, so, uh, so I was working for Eastern Airlines. Went up on a Wednesday to Maps. Um, lo and behold, they weren't going to give me what I wanted. Um, so I said, I'll, okay, thanks. No problem. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let me make a call. So anybody out there listening that's thinking about joining the military, this detailer goes, well, let me make a call and see if I can get you the school you want. Uh, and lo and behold, he got me what I want after I said, okay, I'll just go home. Um, so I come back to come back on, uh, Thursday drive back after I'm there at MEPS doing my physical and checking in and all that. I'm, this is a January time frame. I'm not actually leaving for boot camp till May. 
And I go to work on Friday, and Eastern Airlines shuts their doors forever. Uh, really? Yes. Uh, so I, I guess, Mike, maybe you are right. Maybe I do land on my feet because hundred uh, percent, Ren. There's, <laughs> there, we're not debating that tonight. <laughs> so, uh, so I took odd jobs until May, uh, and and then I shipped off to boot camp. So why why the Navy? Oh, uh, so uh, well, one there's a big presence in the area, um, and it just so happened one of the neighbors of my parents was a Navy SEAL. So I thought maybe that would be something I would be interested in. So that was what I wanted, and that's why I started to walk away, because the detailer wasn't going to put me on the path for that. So when he agreed to send me to BUDS, um, I signed up, and I went in on a program that guaranteed if I passed boot camp and the physical and the physical agility test and an A school, that I would go not to the fleet, but go to BUDS. Right. So, uh, so then went to Orlando, went to boot camp there, no problems. Uh, they sent me to Great Lakes, uh, Chicago area, and went through electrician A school for six months. And, and then they shipped me out to California to San Diego, which is kind of funny because there's a boot camp in Orlando, Chicago, in San Diego, but they kind of bounced me around every, all of them, within my first year. So, so now I'm at Buds, um, and we're going back to the early '90s. There's no internet that that we have. Uh, it may have existed, but nobody was was using it. There, there wasn't much information about Navy SEALs at the time. I think there was a movie uh, with with uh, of course there was. Uh, but to find real substance of what was there, I think there was one book, and I found one videotape at a library. It was a documentary. And <laughs> I got there, and I had no clue what I was in for. Um, <laughs> um, now, athletically, uh, I was young. I was 22. I was in great shape. Uh, but mentally... I just did. I was stressed the whole time. I I, I stressed about it. Uh, I did fine for the short period of time I was there, but I was stressed. And and I'll tell you the evolutions during the evolutions. I didn't think about quitting uh, because if I quit, my boat team would have had to carry a log without one person, or carry a boat, right. or do this or do that without you. So having that group. Um, having that group with you, uh, helped move you along, but boy, the nighttime, uh, played havoc on my mind. You know, I was, am I going to make it tomorrow? Am I going to be dropped tomorrow? Uh, what's going to happen tomorrow? You, you, you had no clue of what your day could, would consist of. You had no clue of what time it was and all those things. It was just not for me. Um, so what time there. of uh, what time of the year were you there? Uh, I was there. I believe it was February. Uh, February. Cold. I was I was there a total of sixteen weeks, but I only made it to week two of the actual training because right. when I got there, uh, they would do this pre-training, 
And there was an eight-week pre-training. And if you didn't get there before a certain week, you had to do the rest of one pre-training. So I spent I spent probably uh, 14 weeks in pre-training when it was only supposed to be an eight-week. And then when I classed up, I I just, I don't know. I think for the longest time, it was easier to quit and say, oh, I could have done it, um, than deal with the failure of actually failing. So um, it was a great lesson for me. Um, um, I struggled with it mentally as far as, you know, I failed something I set out to do, uh, but it was a great experience. And uh, it, it also brought to the forefront with me, there are other ways to support that community uh, without being a SEAL. Right. Uh, and that will parlay into how you and I met, Mike. Okay, so let, let's get there. So you, where did you go after that? So once I finished uh, 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 BUDS, um, I called the de- you got to call a detailer. I had called the electrician's mate detailer, and uh, he's telling me all these ships that I can go to. Well, I don't want to go to a ship. Why would I want to go to a ship? I'm a sailor. Because you're in the Navy, that's why. Yeah, why would I want to go to a ship? I don't want to go to a ship. And somebody had told me, hey, if you go overseas, it counts as sea duty, but you're on the shore. And I was like, uh, it, it kind of hit me in the back of my mind. I, so I said to the detailer, you got anything overseas? And he says, I've got Guam. I had no clue where Guam was. Never heard of it. Didn't know anything about it. I said, I'll take it. And he goes, okay. <laughs> I got you on the Niagara Falls stationed in Guam. I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought we were talking overseas duty that, that counts as sea duty. He goes, buddy, you're going to a ship. Whether it's overseas or in-state, you're going to a ship. You're an electrician's mate. You go to ships. So off I went to Guam, um, and I got assigned to the Niagara Falls. I was a um, – it was considered an underway replenishment yeah. division that I was in, which was, uh, which was um, elevators, package conveyors, uh, winches – if you ever see a picture where two ships are side by side and there's cables going across between them and they're running stores, boxes, and food back and forth, that's kind of what uh, was my equipment that I worked on as an electrician. So, I saw that underway once. It was uh, it was wild to see. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, so, so I, I did that um, while I was. On my first ship, I started working on my service warfare device, pen. Uh, and in that, uh, one of the training was it talked about this manpower list, and it breaks down all the billets on the ship. And And I was looking at it, and I was like, hey, we're supposed to have two elevator electricians, and there are none. So I put a request in, and my division officer, she, she said, yeah, we need an elevator electrician. So off they did. Well, I did my first six month deployment with them, put the paperwork in for that at the end. And when we got back from deployment, she sent me to San Francisco for a month to learn how to be an elevator electrician. So we did that, went back to the ship, did another deployment, the workup and deployment. 
Right. Um, so all these are in the West, Western Pacific. So Thailand, Singapore, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Hong Kong, Australia, uh, Japan. Got to go to all these wonderful places. Um, and then at the end of that, uh, I kind of knew when I first went to the ship, I, I kept saying to myself, I'm going to go back to Buds. I'm going to go back. Um, but then at the, end, at the end of the first ship, like two years there, about a year, uh, three years in the Navy now, um, um, I decided, you know what? I want to get back to the East Coast. I want to work on my exit plan out of the Navy um, because this really is, I don't want to spend my life at sea. Um, there's great things about it, but then there's also, you're at sea a lot. Um, so I talked to a detailer when my time was up, before my time was up, and uh, I asked him if I could get a ship on the East Coast. He's like, no, you can have any co any ship you want on the on the West Coast, but we're not we're not flying you all the way back to the East Coast. You're you're West Coast now. I was like, okay. Uh, how about a sea school? And he said, uh, he said, okay, we can look at a sea school. Uh, you'll have to extend for a year. Not a big deal. I, you know, that would take me from four year commitment to five. I'm at my three year right now, so not a big deal. Uh, I said, well, what do you got? He said, pipe fitter. I'm like, no, I know where that is. That's in the main space, and it's hot in there. <laughs> uh, and he said, I've got Motor Rewind. I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. Because Motor Rewind at the time went to a tender. And there were only two tenders in the Navy at the time, and those tenders never left port. So to me, that's perfect. Are you seeing the pattern, Mike? Are you seeing so what, what you're saying is you went to sea by going to port and staying yes. there. Yes. Okay, all right. Just so, to make sure. Now, so the detailer says to me. Technically, no, you're on water. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're on water. It counts. It counts. So, and, and just to back up a little bit. So, in the Navy, every rating, every job uh, has a seashore rotation. Mine, as an electrician's mate, just happened to be five years at sea, and then you can go to shore for two years. Others are five years at shore and one year at sea, but unfortunately, that's not what I was in. So so anyways, I, I say, I'll take the motor rewind. He goes, I can't give you that. I, we're just getting females on ships, and we're expanding that. I really need to save that billet for a female. And I was like, well, darn it. I was like, what else you got? He said catapults. He goes, I, I, I got a catapult opening. And I was like, well, huh, that's on a carrier, big ship, a lot of people, uh, pretty cool. I was like, okay, how about that? He goes, okay, I got you on the George Washington out of Norfolk uh, after you go to Lakehurst, New Jersey for catapult school. And I was like, I thought you said I couldn't go to the East Coast. He's like, oh, well, it's different. If you're going to take a sea school, then we can send you to the East Coast. And I was like, great. So it ended up working out for me. Went to Lakehurst, New Jersey, a very cool place. That's where the Hindenburg uh, blew up, if you didn't know. You could, uh, throw a rock, you could throw a rock from the Hindenburg Memorial hit my mother's house. Really? Yeah. So we were that close to each other, and we didn't even know it. See that? It was <laughs> destined, meant to be. <laughs> so... So, uh, so that's where the blimps were. Uh, were uh, the hangers for the blimps were at one time? They're uh, still there. The blimp hangers are there. The blimps are not there. Yeah, yeah. There were no blimps there when I went. 
Uh, and so this is around 94-ish. Uh, went to Catapult School and then met up with the George Washington. They were on deployment in the Med. Uh, so that was kind of cool. Got to fly out to different locations in Europe, land and work my way to where the ship was. Got to land in a uh, airplane onto the aircraft carrier. Um, and then did two years and one and a half deployments with them uh, doing med cruises. Uh, fast forward, the end of my enlistment's coming up. I call that wonderful detailer again and said, hey, I want to go to the boat teams. Uh, it's a way to support the special warfare uh, to go work with the boat teams. That's something I, I'd, I'd like to try and do. And um, with that, uh, he said, he started laughing at me over the phone. He's like, you've lost your mind. You're an electrician with two C schools. I'm not releasing you to out, out of our hold to go do this boat thing. We'll never get you back. And we would have wasted all this training on you. And he's like, you can stay in the Navy because at that point they were downsizing. So not everybody was allowed to stay in and reenlist. So I, I thought about it and I got to looking at the reserve and they're in, in uh, Oceana in Virginia beach, the air base at Oceana, they actually had a reserve recruiter. So I called them up, went and met with them, asked them about the boat teams in the reserve and he said, um, he said, they don't take electricians, uh, electrician mates. And I said, well, I am an EMT. And he said, oh, they're always wanting EMTs, so we'll take you. Where, so, where did the EMT come into play? Okay, so I need to backtrack a little bit. When my ship was in, uh, after we came back from six-month deployment, um, I knew the second six-month deployment, or the, the first six-month deployment, I knew I was um, was going to work towards getting out and going to the boat teams in the reserve, or if I couldn't go to the boat teams, just get out. So that's when I started talking to my parents uh, about, or my mother and stepfather, about possible joining the police academy. So while I my ship was kind of in dry dock, they weren't fully dry dock, but they were in a dried up period of doing repairs. Uh, I went through the Virginia Beach Volunteer Fire Academy. Um, the The people I worked with on the ship were just wonderful. They they worked with me on my duty section. They would allow me to go to school. the The way the academy was set up then is it was Tuesday nights and Thursday nights from let's say six to ten, six to nine. I don't know. Six to ten, something like that, and then all day Saturday. So the guys I worked with, uh, the first class, I was a second class at this time. Uh, the first classes I worked for, uh, they're like, no worries. We'll, if you're supposed to work on Thursday, we'll move it to Friday. Or if you're supposed to work on Saturday, we'll move it to Sunday. And they really worked with me so I could get this training. So when the end, when I was done with all that training, I had EMTB. I had Firefighter 1 and Firefighter 2. Oh, that's great. I got involved a little bit with the volunteers in Virginia Beach. Uh, I got assigned to a station. Uh, I started taking some of the specialty classes, the rope rescue classes. The, Of course, 
gravitated to HTR stuff first. Um, a lot of trench vehicle rope classes. So I started taking those while I was still in the Navy on the weekends. Um, did another six month deployment. Uh, that was the last. We come back from the deployment. I think I had a month or two and got off active duty. And the next day I was in the reserve. What was the plan coming? Well, I shouldn't say what was the plan. What was the, what was the transition like coming out of active duty? You know, I never, I, I, it was seamless to me. I, because I went into the reserve and, and I don't remember how long it was, but I may have walked off the ship on a Friday and two weeks later was my first drill weekend kind right. of thing. So I never really felt like I left the Navy. Um, uh, and yeah, really until I retired from the Navy, I never really felt like I wasn't part of the Navy. So what about uh, what, more, more specifically coming out of the military full time and going into civilian life? I, I didn't notice a transition at all. Fantastic. I, I just, to me, it was seamless. I was young. Um, so what are we, I don't know what, how old I was, 26-ish, 25-ish, somewhere around there, 27, right. maybe, I don't know. It was, it, it just, it never seemed like I wasn't in the military. Um, right. Even though I, I was only doing it one week in a month. Um, and that's when I got assigned with the boat teams out at Little Creek. Uh, Special Boat Team 20. I think it was called Special Boat Unit 20 at the time. It was. Uh, and uh, started meeting people. And then one day, lo and behold, you and I uh, got paired up on a boat team. Well, happened something like that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I, I enlisted in the Navy Reserves. <clears throat> I got hired by the fire department in 95. Enlisted in the Navy at ninety-seven in in ninety-seven at twenty-seven. Did a year of whatever, and then um, our our mutual mentor uh, Joe was the one. He was I, I don't know the 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 units and stuff. But he was a group at the time. Um, he was drilling at a little creek, and he said, "Hey, listen, come down with me." And check out what's going on with these boat teams or the boat units. So I went down there for for a weekend and said, "This is where I need to be," and I was able to get a spot. Um, he knew Harold, and um, they found a spot for me. And uh, it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. Um, you know, for me, it was a lot different. You were local, right? I mean, you, you I pretty was. much. I was right was, there. It, it took me 30 to 45 minutes to get home at the end of the weekend. How long did it take you? It was a 750 miles round trip. So about seven hours. Uh, but it was like a vacation, you know, for me to come down the eastern shore, uh, you know, get to the, the bridge tunnel. And uh, it was like another world. Um, so we. I had the deployment in 99 where I went to Puerto Rico with uh, 
Kenny and Kenny and Charlie. We did that for a couple months, and then I was really hooked. Um, and then we came back, and then we had the opportunity to to do a deployment in two thousand one. So the deployment in two thousand one. What? Let, let's hear just briefly your perspective of the deployment in two thousand one. Oh, um, now just to uh, I'll set I'll set set us up for success here. Um, two thousand one clearly. Uh, um, you know some some historical events happened in two thousand one. We were deployed in in January through July of two thousand one. So did 195 days of active duty all before 9-11. Um, yep. But let, let's hear the deployment from your, from your perspective. Um, so um, the, it, I, I, I help me if I get this wrong, cause I know you guys have studied this as well. Uh, and it's been a while since I looked at it, but situational leadership too. Uh, talks about the different stages that you go through as team building. Uh, when I look back at our deployment, Mike, I see that. I see the storming and the, the norming and the conforming and the uh, performing. Uh, it, it was I, wasn't there. I was only there for the storming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but it was, and and I think... The Navy, right around that time, started before you could go to the next rank. Um, you had to go through this leadership training, and so the dimming method or the dimming principles, and then the situational leadership. Uh, those were some things the Navy was pushing at the time. I don't, I don't know. I know they still do those, but I don't know what the system looks like. But to me, it was eye opening to see how this team uh, went through those phases. And I, I recognized we were going through those phases. Um, there was some rough. There was, uh, you know, we learn just as much from our bad leaders as we do from our good. Uh, there was some good leaders there, and there were some bad leaders there. Uh, I remember one leader telling me, uh, you know, Ren, you're starting to get some rank. And you need to realize that you need to treat your 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 junior sailors as kindergartners because they're going to screw up, and you need to teach them or, or, or treat them like kindergartners and keep your thumb on them uh, because otherwise they're going to screw up. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. Oh my gosh, this is why we've had so much stress in this deployment. Uh, my stance has always been. You treat people like adults. Yes, they're going to make mistakes. And yes, as the supervisor, you have to, you are responsible for those mistakes. But you train them, you mentor them, you, you teach them. Because if, if I keep my thumb on somebody the whole time and treat them like a two-year-old, when I'm not around, they're going to behave like a two-year-old. And I'm not always going to be around. And then one day, I'm going to retire, and that person's going to be in the leadership position. And they're going to be telling somebody, you got to treat them like a kindergartner. And that's not what we need. That's not what we need leadership in the military or in the fire service. Let them make mistakes. Help them. Help them learn from those mistakes. You know, it's the same thing with our children. You know, 
you can talk to your blue in your face about your experiences and and warn them about things, but they've got to experience some of those failures for themselves, uh, and they've got to learn from them. You know, I, I'm sure that my father tried with me, and, and I made the mistakes he told me not to make. Uh, so, so, anyways, I'm kind of getting off subject, Mike, but that is that is what I saw. I saw a lot of that transition trying to become a team, yeah. and then some of the leadership within the organization really didn't have. The training, and not that it was his fault necessarily. Uh, he came up through a military where they didn't focus on teaching these. You know, right. the fire service. There, there's a lot of fire services that really it's the luck of the draw whether or not you get good officers to learn and emulate from versus the bad ones. Uh, and you never go to the fire academy and talk to other people. Or you never learn about leadership within in your state or within school, college, or within uh, the fire service. So, unfortunately, that is to me something that is huge. It is something that I and I I know there's constraints of budget, but if I was ever fire chief, that would be a priority with me, just like it was with the military back. Along what was that ninety? Or we're talking, we're talking oh one. So back right. in 01, the Navy was implementing it, and they started instead of starting at the top, who probably wouldn't accept it anyways. They started in the middle. They started with E fives, right. uh, as far as I'm aware, because I was an E five at the time. They started with E fives, and that was brilliant because they started when somebody wasn't saying, "Oh, that's BS. Don't look at it." Now, that's what our leaders, some of my leaders told me. All that stuff's BS. Just do the class, get the checkbox, and keep going. But it stuck with me. And then through my transition, through my career, they kept reinforcing that, and they changed the culture in my mind. They changed the culture of the Navy uh, where this leadership leadership matters. Uh, these these tools and and mentoring other people matters. Uh, so instead of starting at the top and trying to force that change down, they just let those guys go. When they retired, yeah. they moved on, but they focused where they could start and carry it for the whole career. And I don't know who came up with that. I don't know if it was a by mistake, but to me, that was a brilliant way to bring change into an organization. How many times have we seen the need for change within our fire services? Um, and we try to uh, get a new fire chief. He tells the, the chiefs below, him, we're going to do this. And then they walk out to the stations and they don't even tell them. Or they tell them, hey, the fire chief wants to do this, but we're not doing that. And, and that leads me into another thing. Uh, well, I, I, maybe I'll get into that later. So, Mike, I'm sorry to, to run off on tangents. So that was what I thought of the deployment. Um, but that deployment, in my mind, all the hardships we had. Uh, I remember us cooking out yeah. together. I remember us playing uh, uh, stickball together. I remember us working through those boats and tweaking them. I remember you and I taking the comms apart, resetting them up, taking boats to other sides of the base and doing comms checks. Yeah, I remember that. And honestly, some of those guys... Uh, you 
you and I are the only two. You are the only one that I keep up with. But those guys are like brothers to me. Uh, so much like brothers. You know, it's it's really um, one of the things I love about doing the podcast, <clears throat> and it happens in every podcast, everyone, whether it's me or you uh, or both, is that you start to tell stories and, and you remember something that you haven't thought about in a really long time. Um, and one of the things that, because I was laughing where you t were talking about the the forming and norming and stuff like that. Uh, we really did have a lot of that when I got back. Uh, essentially what happened, Mike, for you and for the listeners, we got roughly, we got to Rota, Spain in January. And then a couple weeks into the deployment, I got forward deployed. Um <clears throat> so I left these guys for a couple months and then came back and then had to kind of work my way back into the team. Uh, and it, and it was, it was a challenge for a lot of different reasons, but looking back, uh, reminiscing a little bit, if you will, <clears throat> you and I are, are here tonight. Uh, I still keep in touch with a couple of the, the guys from that deployment and, and, and we really did, the good thing about memories is that you forget some of the bad stuff and you really remember the good stuff. And, uh, I, I truly cherish that, uh, that experience. It was, it was, it was good. It was good for, for me. And, uh, I remember we did, we really did do a lot of things together. The, the comms thing particularly is, uh, something that I hadn't thought about until just now. So what I want to do, what I want to hear from you, because of all the guests that I could possibly have on, there are probably a handful that would have the same mentor, the opportunity to be mentored by the same person. Talk to me about your experiences with uh, with Joe, with Senior Chief Joe. Oh, so um, Joe was very short in my life it's a very short period um and it, it's very hazy uh of i was still trying to figure out my place in the unit um up, up and really it was almost like everything was so, kind of a blur until we did that deployment uh, after that everything was kind of it really in focus but right. let me tell you what joe taught me it, Joe, and, and I'm talking, I saw Joe, I'm guessing, eight times yeah. over the drill weekends. Yeah, you know, I didn't work for Joe uh, directly. Um, he wasn't around long once I got there. And then we did the six-month deployment, and when we came back, I don't remember how long Joe stayed after that. I think he was close to retirement. But let me tell you about Joe. So Joe taught me two things and I have stole them and added two more things to leadership, my leadership philosophy. I remember this. Yeah. I, so Joe, yeah. Joe was notorious about teaching. There's two, his leadership philosophy from what I knew and I don't want to speak for him, but there were two, two things, do the right thing and look out for your people. And if you're doing number one, 
Number two is already taken care of. Now, I have added, make all orders your own orders. And when I was going through the chief's process to become a chief in the Navy, uh, I had this jerk of a senior chief seal. Uh, he was terrible. Uh, but he gave me this wisdom in, uh, in my uh, charge book, and it was, make all orders your orders. And he said, do you know what this means? And I said, I don't have a clue. And he said, well, what if, and, and I'm going to change it to the fire service because that's where I explain this a lot. If the battalion chief comes to the station and says to the captain, hey, these windows look filthy. You need to wash these windows. You as the captain don't go back to your, your firefighters and say, hey, I don't want to wash these windows either, but the chief told me we have to wash them, so we got to wash them. That totally destroyed your credibility as a leader. And the next time you tell somebody something to do, or you tell a subordinate something to do, what's going to stop them from making that order their order? And they're just going to say, I don't want to do this either, but the captain's saying we got it. That is not taking responsibility for your leadership position. So, senior chief, I don't remember his name. I could probably find it in a book, but I added that. And then the last thing that I added that's a philosophy that I try and, and stick with is, is kill your enemies with kindness. You know, Mike... <laughs> I, never learned, this, I, I never learned that one. Okay. <laughs> so, you know what? If Mike, if you piss me off and I hold a grudge to it, I am burning up inside. I'm letting it eat me up. And you have control over me uh, because you have caused me to feel this way. If I just let it go and kill you with kindness, then you have no control over me. It's not affecting my attitude. And 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 I would, if you don't mind, Mike, I'd like to roll into. Uh, and you may know who this guy was, but I'd like to roll into an example of this in my career. You okay with that? I'm fine with it. Okay. So I'm new at the boat team, and I'm a second class, and there's another second class. And this second class has been at this boat team for a long time. He signed off to drive everything, and he's teaching me how to drive the boat. And, you know, when you drive a car, you put two hands on the steering wheel. Well, when you drive a fast boat, you keep one hand on the throttle and one hand on the steering wheel. And the reason for that is if you take a rogue wave, you need to push forward through it, or you need to break down and kill the engine, depending on the situation. So I'm driving this boat, and I keep putting my hand that should be on the throttle on the steering wheel, and he's slapping my hand like I'm a child. And we're equal in rank. He does, he is my supervisor in the sense of he, he's assigned a, a leadership role within this organization, but we're the same rank, and he's slapping my hand like a kid. Uh, and, and I'm getting a little bit out of shape about it. Um, but then I decide I won't kill this guy with kindness. I'm not, I'm, I need to get this qualification to drive this boat. So I'm going to put up with it. I'm going to kill him with kindness. So I do. We get along. He's, he's senior to me, uh, in the hierarchy within the, the same rank. Uh, and then I get promoted over him. Uh, and not just one rank, but two ranks. I make chief. And this guy is a thorn in my side. And, and, and I'm sure you guys have had these guys in the fire department that they push the envelope to be insubordinate with you to the point where it's not enough for you to be able to 
deal with it and discipline it, but it's enough where you know it's going, going on. And they're undermining your authority with the rest of your subordinates. Right. This was that guy. He was so heartbroken because I got promoted twice now over him. Um, so time goes on. I, I, I keep working with him. I keep trying to bring him around. And I finally did when now I've made another rank. I'm a senior chief now. Uh, and he's still an, he's an E6 at this point. Uh, he's bumped up one rank. He's gone to try and make chief in the Navy, and several times he hasn't made it. He comes to me and says, you've done well. Can you help me look at my submission for the chief's uh, promotion and help me because I only have one shot left? I helped him. He, got, he made chief. Not, I don't know if I did anything or not, but I put the time in to help him go through his package to make sure everything was there. Uh, and then he became one of the biggest supporters of me and gave me the biggest privilege, one of the biggest privileges I've had in my life. He chose me as his mentor as he went through the chief's process. I got to put his cap uh, on him when he made chief. Uh, and so this went from, and this is a long period of time. I don't, I'm saying, I don't know, seven, eight years, nine years, some, wow. somewhere. But, and Mike, I'll tell you who it is later. Um, no, I think I, I think I know who it is. Um, but <clears throat> this guy really, I was, I, I was so heartfelt that he chose me to be his, it, it, that's who, that's your mentor when you make chief is the, the person you choose for that. And that really showed me that my number four in my leadership philosophy can work. Um, and, and it's just a, just a different mindset. Now, will I say I've always done it right every time? No. Uh, there's been plenty of times I didn't kill my enemy with kindness. I cussed and fussed. Uh, but I try and live by this model. So now Joe started me on this path. Joe, the guy that, that I had eight days probably in my life working with, left me with these two starting philosophies for leadership. The guy had, the, I, I just can't say enough, he, he has no clue what he gave me in just those eight days experience in leadership. Uh, because it started me on this path to come up with these four. And they have done me well uh, throughout my career in the Navy and my career in the fire department. It's it's a testament to the impact of mentorship. It, it doesn't need to be formal. It doesn't need to be prolonged. It can be brief. It, it's it's mentorship is a, is a gift that you give to the mentee. And, you know, Joe, for me, I remember, I can close my eyes and tell you the first time I ever saw him, we because he worked in my fire department. And I was like, this guy's such an asshole. Um, you know, but he was, he was breaking my chops. We were, we were new. We were running up the hose tower and this guy's yelling at me. I'm like, who is this guy yelling? Um, then I did my time in the ambulance, wound up getting, assigned to a firehouse where he was the officer 
and um, he took me under his wing. I, I approached him about the Navy, and he showed up at my uh, at the recruiter with me. Funny story for those of you who have any idea what the military is like. We walk into this recruiting station in Kearney, New Jersey, and I walk in. I know nothing about what I'm doing, and it's me and Joe, and we're in civvies. And apparently Joe said something to the recruiter. I found out later, you know, he goes in there and he tells them that he's in the Navy and uh, tells the, the recruiter who's an E5, I think. He says, I'm a senior chief. This guy starts stepping and fetching. He's like, and I'm like, what did he say? You know, because I don't know anything about what a senior chief is. Um, but but Joe came down and, and was there for my swearing in and, and uh, just always there. You know, I ran my first marathon with Joe, you know, uh, I did my first long run, which was a mile at the time. And then with, within a year, ran my first marathon. Hey, Mike, uh, every time I go to run, which isn't very often anymore, <laughs> but every time I go to run, I remember you're saying when we would run for PT, if you want to be a good runner, do a lot of running. <laughs> I got I that from your, Joe. I hear that in my head every time. I got that from Joe. He said, "If you want to be a good runner, you got to do a lot of running, <laughs> right?" And it's just those simple wisdoms uh, that that a, you can impart. Um, I owe a lot. You know, um, I accomplished a lot after. Joe retired, but we were always connected. We were always friends. But just that that mentorship, that that putting you on the right path, um, the the bigger impact in in the fire service that I have with Joe, he said, come and be a part of my study group for promotion. And we started with two, and then three, and then we were up to eleven at one point. That's half department. It was a, it was, listen, it was a lot of people. <laughs> <clears throat> and I get your joke and it's not funny. Um, <laughs> I thought it was very funny. That's yeah. Where's the laugh funny. tracks when you need them? Yeah, they're in there somewhere. <laughs> so, um, so we went up with six and I, I wound up getting promoted. As a matter of fact, I found out that I was getting promoted when I was in Rota being forward deployed. Uh, super slow dial-up, and I I was getting on the <clears throat> the plane to go wherever I was going. I don't even remember. And I found out that I was going to get promoted. I was number five on the on the list. Um, but it, more importantly than that was was the way in which we studied. We, it was collaborative. We helped each other. We learned how to learn. Uh, we supported each other. All the stuff that you're talking about, team building. He was a master of team building, um, and um, I, in a lot of ways, still do some of those things today uh, when I have the opportunity to, to do that. So it really does go a long way, um, and I'm hoping to have him on here at some point, by the way. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely let you know if I do. i got to reach yeah. out to him. I don't know that he would come on. You know, he's, he's cranky now because he's old. <laughs> so 
after 2001, we come back. Um, you and I went to Sears School. Yeah, what are your memories of that? <laughs> I was hungry. <laughs> I don't want to go into too much detail, but I was I wasn't that cold, but I was hungry. We were we were in, in the middle of Maine, nowhere Maine, in the winter, and Sear School is Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape School. I've actually been in the middle of Maine in summertime, and it's cold in the summer. Yeah, well, it it was supposed to be a lot colder. Um, I think it got to like minus thirteen while we were there. Well. It 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 was probably cold, but it wasn't. I I thought we were going to be digging uh, like snow caves and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we did a couple days in the classroom, if I remember, and then we did the uh, the uh, what are they called? The practical evolution portion of the course. Now you were you were what team leader, squad leader? What, what were you? I was senior enlisted. I was a E6, and I was the most senior-ranked uh, enlisted person, which is not a coveted position, let me tell you. They, uh, they, they uh, focus on you a lot and give you a little extra training. Right. Uh, but it wasn't bad. I, I will say that uh, I thought that school was amazing. Uh, it, it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't, uh, I thought it was fun at points, but if you <laughs> ever had to utilize what they were teaching, uh, I felt like they really prepared me, uh, if, if I ever needed that, those skills, uh, yeah. it was amazing to me, uh, the little things that they taught us in how to survive mentally and physically uh, through that type of process. So um, I don't know what the school's like now, um, but uh, I was very thankful that the Navy allowed me to go to that school. Yeah, me as well. And I was glad to be able to go through with you. The uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it wasn't um, – looking back, it, it seemed like a lot more fun, but it was uh, – I was paired up with a girl. So if you went anywhere, you had to go with your partner. And uh, she was an 18-year-old girl. And, and uh, you know, if you're with a guy, it's a lot easier to, to go relieve yourself in the woods than it is with a girl. So it was uh, interesting. So you mentioned um, becoming a chief. So not everybody becomes a chief. In the Navy, um, it's a big deal. Would you agree? Yeah, I think they say um, <laughs> 5% of the people that make it a career uh, achieve that. So it's only 5%. Um, so. What, what was the, the – what do they call that when you're – you're selected, and then you go through, what is that process called? Well, it used to be called initiation, and then it became induction. And to be honest with you, I don't know what they call it now. Right. Uh, it may have changed back. It may have changed. But um, I, uh, <laughs> glutton for punishment, um, You, as a reservist, you don't have to partake in the full process. Um, 
the reserve results come out before the active duty do. Uh, so I, I went on orders, uh, for seven weeks to go through the process. Did you? Uh, two of them, the first two, we didn't know who in the active duty side, uh, was selected. And then the last five, uh, it was, they, they pair you up. Uh, well, I mean, they bring you all together, all the, the selectees together, um, and there's a lot of studying about military history. There's a lot of studying about leadership and leadership courses you have to do. There's a lot of evolutions uh, that are built around team building and mentoring and uh, looking out for your junior sailors and respecting what got you where, got you to this point. Right. And how can you take those experiences that got you to this point and help somebody else get to this point. Um, so um, it was a very interesting process. Anybody that uh, is about to go through it or in the future goes through it, I would say try and look for why are they making me do this? Why, why are they putting me through this evolution, which seems stupid and petty and all. I'm here to tell you, uh, looking back on it, um, I knew, I recognized it a little bit during it and then more as I got to the other side and then participated in future, uh, initiations. Right. Um, there is a purpose for every evolution in there. It might be a handful of green army men are thrown into a pond or, a, you know, a small body of water. And you've got to find those people. Those are your sailors. Those are the people you are responsible for. Uh, so, and you're crawling around through this mud looking for your people. Well, there's a point to that. There's a point to having accountability for your people, uh, for um, letting them know where you are. Uh, and Mike, if you don't mind, this just brought up a memory about the Navy. And I, I love it. In the fire department. And I'd like to share it if you don't mind. I so, love it. I remember us being at Fort Pickett, uh, doing land <laughs> navigation or a gun shoot or something. Now I'm the leading petty officer of our group. So I've got, I'm an E6 and I've got other E6s that are, we're the same rank and they may have actually been an E6 longer than I have, but for whatever reason, I've been chosen to be the leading petty officer of this group. Well, I had a guy that would go off and disappear and, and come back and, uh, we did an evolution and he disappeared. And I was like, dude, where are you? Uh, and he's like, look, I, I, I had to go to the bathroom. I shouldn't have to tell you every time I go to the bathroom. And I was like, no, you're missing the point. The point is, if we are out in the field during a real time war situation and you go behind the tree to go to the bathroom and nobody knows about it and we are attacked we may head in a total different direction and now you become a prisoner of war or you're killed. Uh, so there is a purpose to me saying, if look, I don't give a shit if you go, go hide in the corner and sleep all day. If that's what you want to do, that's up to you and, and that's your career. But I need to know that you're going over there and sleeping because we are accountable for each other and there are situations where this is going to uh, cause a problem. Now, to parlay that in, uh, 
to the fire service in in my department um after the morning routine stuff's done a lot of times we'll go to the grocery store the the we have paid operators the paid operators in most cases are the cooks so the cook and i and and the other two members of my crew we would go into the grocery store and i'd tell dave at the time dave was my driver dave i'm going to the bathroom just so you know because heaven forbid we get that big uh barn burner uh call come in and they don't know where i am and and, and i i wasn't reporting to dave and if Dave went to the bathroom, he was telling me it's accountability of our people because we are on the clock. We we are are ready to respond at any moment, and we don't know what we're going to get. So it's not about of of trying to control this guy in this evolution. It's about safety. It's about knowing where our people are. So um, that was just no, something that kind of popped in. I think it's it's important. I, I used to. In a similar vein, I used to tell people, we can have fun. I'm all about having fun. But you need to put the business first. So take care of business, and then then you've earned the right to have a good time. Um, you know, so in, in a similar to what you're saying, you know, it wasn't about reporting. It was about you were always thinking about the business at hand. Um. That that really is is important, um, you know. Similar to a discipline equals freedom type of thing, the more discipline you are, the more freedom that you have. For for me, the message that I was imparting to to the people that I was around, whether it was a company officer or a chief officer, is take care of the business first, and then and then have as much fun as you want after that. But but make sure that that you're that you're never forgetting about the mission. Who who was your mentor for your chief's initiation? You got me thinking now, because you said you said that so and so, who I I think I know, I think I know, selected you. Who did you select, and why? Um, if you if you care to tell, if you don't want to tell, no, that, I, I would I I'll be happy. That's a conversation. Uh, offline between you and me. Okay. Absolutely. No, no uh, worries. And, and I'm happy to talk to you about it. I just, I don't want to talk about it on the air. That's fine. It's fair. I love okay. that. Um, now, just cause I'm curious, you made master chief E9. I, I did. As high as you can go. They don't, they don't have that initiation for each chief rank. No. Once, once you make chief, you're, you're in the, in the mess as they call it. So what was the you were deployed after 2001 how many times for forgetting about our deployment how many times were you deployed uh only once I went to Iraq in 06 um I did a deployment I was a chief at the time um and then shortly after getting back from that deployment I made senior chief Right And then when did you get out I got out in 2013. Okay. I was I was pretty lucky. Um, um, I, I was slow to make rank up until first class. Right. And then I made chief first time up. I made senior chief first time up. I made master chief first time up. 
I, I was kind of lucky in, in billet structure and, and the, the, you know, the, the fluctuation of the size of the Navy is constantly changing. And, right. Know, well, was, they have a saying, choose your rate, choose your fate. Uh, and it just so happens I, I was on a, on a right track. Right. Well, the Naval Special Warfare also went through a lot of changes at that time as well, right? So you went from from EM to, to Bosa's mate, if I remember correctly? Yeah. So um, <laughs> funny story. Uh, we were deployed to Spain. I was a second class uh, E5, and I, I was having trouble making E6, and my test results came back. And regardless of the score, it said the average time that an electrician's mate will make first class right. is 19 years and 11 <laughs> months. And I, I'm sitting at uh, 10 years, uh, I think. Was it 10? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm at the right around the 10 year mark, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm never. I'm never going to make E6 until the day before I, re- the month before I retire. I'm like, I'm going to have to do something about this. So the Navy has uh, a document they put out every year and it tells you what positions, what jobs are overmanned and what jobs are undermanned. And, and it's a, and you're able, if you're in an overman, like I was as an electrician's mate, you can cross to something else. So we had a bunch of guys in the reserve that were looking at crossing and they all wanted to go to gunner's mate because it was undermanned. Right. Uh, now I had kind of paid attention and I had seen people change rates before. And what I had noticed is if you're in a overmanned rate, you jump to an undermanned rate, you get promoted that one level, but then lo and behold, that new job becomes overmanned about the time you want to put on the next rank. So they all jumped to Gunner's Mate. I said, well, Bosun Mate is right in the middle. I'm going to go to Bosun Mate. We came back. I started the paperwork to cross to Bosun Mate. We came back from that deployment, and the command did a meritorious advancement promoting me to E6 when we came back from, from there. So I didn't make it on the test, but they chose me they were they were allowed to promote one person a year uh and they promoted me to e6 and then my paperwork came in saying i was now a bosun mate first class and then i went up to chief as a bosun mate and um when i looked at the quotas so after the the board meets they put out quotas and 51 percent of the people going up that year were going to make yeah chief as a bosun mate uh, gunner's mate was full, so nobody made it from gunner's mate. Uh, and so I made chief the first time up. And then uh, we were kind of in this transition. We had, I think at one point, 12 chiefs uh, in our reserve unit, and which is a lot if we're a smaller unit. And a lot of them were at higher tenure in the Navy. So every year they would ask the Navy, they would put a request in, hey, can I stay one more year? And the Navy would say yes. Uh, So these guys were sticking around uh, for 28, 30 years, uh, kind of blocking up other people from getting promoted. And and I think the Navy was kind of downsizing at that time, and they said no more. So we had a mass exodus of chiefs 
And there was only, I don't know, a handful of us, maybe five left. And so now I'm a chief, a Bosonate chief. There's five of us left of different rates. And then lo and behold, they gave us our own rating. They gave SEALs a rating as an SO. They gave boat operators an SB. Divers became Navy divers, ND, and um, uh, EOD became EOD. So then I go up for senior chief. Well, I'm one of the last men standing, so there were five billets for senior chief, I think, the year I went up, and there were only two people eligible. Uh, and then three years later, I went up for master chief. There were two billets available and only two people eligible. And so I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, and and I made master chief in 19 years. Uh so are you are you picking up on this, Mike? Time I've got it written down. Timing. Ren is a master of timing. Timing is everything. I'm and just pay- lucky. I'm just very. I was going to say, yeah, he'd small in, or fall into a pile of crap and come out smell <laughs> like roses. Yeah, he's, he's got that down. And look it. how attractive he is with the hair. I mean, everything he does is is art. Well, there's there's a lot of details that we're not even going to get to about how the new job benefits. Either way, I. I love it. it. It pissed me off in 2001, but something I come to, it's endearing. Timing is everything. Pay attention to the details. Yeah. Um, the, the details matter. Talk to us about your, uh, your, your, um, your career in the fire department as, as far as the, your promotions go, because I know that that, that was a different path for you. Um, yeah, so um, I was, well, I don't, I don't know. It was, what do you mean? I just didn't promote as fast, I guess. Um, right. So I made I made lieutenant in nine years. Um, it took me three tries. Our department at the time you had to have six years in. Um, uh, the first time I took the test, I had no clue what I was doing. We would do a written test and then an assessment center. Right. Um, and then then seniority points would get added at the end. Um, we would have typically 120 people uh, put in for lieutenant or take the test. And out of that, uh, I'm guessing here, 30 would get promoted in right. a two-year period. Uh, so... First time, didn't have a clue. Second time, uh, did good on the written test, which we would have, I don't know, five to seven books, fire service books we would have to read and questions would come out of them. Uh, And then the third time, after the second time, I did well on the written, but then the assessment center I dropped to, I I think there was one person in front of me when the list was done. I was number two on the list. So... So I knew I had to do better on the assessment center. So um, what I did was I figured, hey, this guy just made lieutenant. I'm no longer his competition, so maybe he'll share information with me. So I went to him and I was like, hey, you scored number one on the assessment center. How did you study for it? And he gave me his notes. And basically what he did is he broke down – note cards and what he would do on that fire scene in the assessment. We would have a tactical assessment 
and then we would have three personnel assessments. Um, so I sat down and I said, you know what, if I have a hazmat, I have a technical rescue, I have an EMS, or I have a, um, a structure fire, what is all common denominators in that? And I created an outline, and it was just bullet points um, of what I would do from the morning I got in to critical stress debriefing after the call's over and right. paperwork's done. So I started with that. Um, and then a uh, funny story that I was hoping we would get to, and this is a perfect point into it. There's this friend of mine, um, and I'm studying my assessment center, and he's studying for the test for the first time. And he's like, I got no clue what I'm doing on this assessment center. I'm going to bomb it. So we're about a month or two out from the, the assessment center. I was like, well, here's my notes. And he's like, Ren, are you sure you want to give me these? I'm your competition. And I was like, no, you're not. I said, I said his name was Sean. Uh, I said, Sean, let me, let me tell you how I see this. If I give you my assessment center notes and you get promoted, I've created an ally in this department for the rest of my career. You and I are... are I've created an ally because I helped you get promoted. I said, if I you take this material and you don't study it and I study it and I get promoted, I still helped you. So I've created a friend and an ally within this department. I said, now the best scenario is we both study this. We both get promoted. Who cares? I don't care if you get promoted for me as long as I get promoted. And then it's, it's a win for you because you got promoted. It's a win for me because I got promoted. And it's a win for me because... I've just created a friend and an ally for the rest of my career in this department. So if I think of things that way, this goes back to my uh, kill people with kindness, uh, kill your enemies with kindness. Uh, if I think of it that way, he's not my competition. I'm my competition. I've got to study and do the best I can. So that was kind of, lo and behold, I did make lieutenant that time and, and, and he didn't, but we became we we stayed very good friends for the rest of my career. Um, so that's kind of my philosophy on it. Um, I think I want to say I made captain the first time. It's in my department. There's normally only about fourteen people that are eligible for captain when it comes up, and normally that whole list gets promoted. Uh, so I think I, I think I scored I don't know in the top five, and I got promoted second go round of that one. And then battalion chief, I want to say I tested twice for that. Uh, and they kind of changed how the grading was done on a resume. And I went from having the second highest resume uh, to having the worst from the first time I took battalion chief to the second. Uh, so... I, I don't know what happened there because nothing had really changed. I had EFO, I had a master's degree, I had all these, uh, I was paramedic, uh, and for some reason people that weren't uh, had ended up scoring. It, it almost flipped the list however it was they graded from the previous time. So, uh, But um, eventually, I think I was seven on my battalion chief's list, and um, about a year in I got promoted. Um, so, so that was my, um, my time with that. So let me ask you some kind of pointed questions here. 
Um, can you give me an example of what value your military experience played in your role as an officer, company or chief officer in the fire department? Oh, the military was huge. Uh, so, um, uh, how I talked earlier about the leadership training that the military had instituted, um, I want to say I was a chief. Was I a chief? I I was a chief. I think I was a chief in the Navy before I was a lieutenant in the fire department. And, you know, typically in my fire department, when you make lieutenant, you're going to change shifts. They're going to put you on a whole other shift. So you're less likely to have to lead your best friend. Right. Uh, and they do that to help you transition into that leadership position. Well, in the reserve unit, Mike, uh, I was in that unit for 18 years. And what are you, the guy, 18 the guy, years? I was, the, I was in the reserve yeah. at that unit for 18 years. Um, so when I got promoted, I told you about the guy that was a thorn in my side. I had to learn how to lead this guy yeah. that, that wasn't my friend, uh, much less lead people that were my friends. So... It really helped me practice uh, before the fire service promoted me. Uh, we've all seen that new lieutenant that uh, wants to change everything in the world, but has no clue how the systems work and what it takes to make that rock move. Uh, and that new lieutenant or first level officer that comes in and is a tyrant and really forgets where they came from. Right. Well, I was lucky enough to make those mistakes in the Navy uh, one week in a month um, with that group of guys. Uh, and then I think it was an easier transition for me. Now, the people that I worked with may, not, may say, no, he never learned that. Uh, <laughs> but me personally, from my mindset, I think my transition was a lot smoother because of that experience. And I will say, I was very lucky with the officers that I worked for through my career. Uh, there were some bad, but the, and, and a lot of the bad were the lieutenants uh, that were still trying to figure out their leadership uh, position. Uh, but the captains that I worked for and the battalion chiefs, uh, I was very lucky to have some really good mentors. <clears throat> Excuse me. The EFO program. What was the biggest takeaway from your four years in EFO that you remember? Oh, so uh, the networking was one. Um, and that's huge in the Navy. Uh, the, the chief's mess is really big on utilizing uh, everybody's experience. You know, so you, you're, you have 10 years and this guy has 14 and this girl has 17. And we combine all that years of experience in the Navy to help us figure out things. It's a, it's supposed to be the oldest fraternity in, in history, uh, because the Navy's so old and the chief's mess is so old. Uh, but that, uh, to me, uh, is something that I pulled from the EFO. I utilized it so much in that OPS position, asking for, uh, policies that other people had and how they did different, different programs. Um, and, you know, everybody, everybody wants to share. And I, I saw guys within my own organization 
Virginia Beach is right next to Norfolk, and uh, I remember we were working. I, I was part of a, a committee to work on a uh, a master firefighter program, and I remember saying to a battalion chief, "Hey, why don't we? Virginia Beach has one. Why don't we get their policy and, and see what they do?" We don't need Virginia Beaches. We're different. We're not them. And I'm thinking to myself, no, we're not them. But I don't want to make the same mistakes they made starting out in their process. They've made some mistakes. We all make mistakes when we start something new. Let's learn from their mistakes and build from it. And that's what the EFO helped me with. That and, um, gosh, I had another another thing. Um, um, yeah. Ask me the question again, Mike, and it may pop back in my mind. Uh, what did I say? What was the biggest uh, takeaway from your okay. four years in EFL? Yep, thank you. So uh, another takeaway I took was the conversations we had with uh, people from different departments. Um, you and I, uh, I think three of my years, and I don't know if you were in all three with me, there was a young lady from San Francisco, and that's an even bigger department than I'm in and uh, a very traditional department. So to hear how they did things and and how they tackled things, there was so much conversation in between the courses, uh, on breaks, after hours, talking with all these other departments from all over the country and learning how great your department is and how forward-thinking yours is and how backwards yours is. Uh, so there were so many things. I was like, oh, my gosh, we're so much better th- at that than you guys are. And then two seconds later, oh, my gosh, we're so backwards <laughs> than you guys on this. And it was just it was just such a great mind opening experience to have these conversations in leadership classes. Um, they're not all leadership, but uh, it, that was another takeaway. Um, and then. I think the the last takeaway I got from it, well, there there's two. Uh, I had been through a bachelor's program, and I thought I knew how to write papers. But we <laughs> we I don't know how it is now, but I, I hear there's only one paper. Uh, sure. I think that's a disservice. Um, I think the four papers were I didn't want to do them at the time. I don't want to do them now. But I see the benefit in the four different papers because if when I look back at, at my progression in writing those papers, every one of them I got better, and every one of them have has helped me in both the fire service and in the job I do now. Learning how to write, learning how to read, learning how to prove things, learning how to do proper research. Um, um, so that was a takeaway. Uh, I think I had one more, but I forgot it again, Mike. Hey, I want to endorse the learning how to not write a paper so that at the end you really know how to write a paper. Because that that was literally my path. 2-0 and go until I got to the end. Then I had a good paper. I learned learned how to compartmentalize it, make it something you could actually research within a reasonable size and time frame. And now I help other people who are trying to do their master's degrees or whatever they're trying to accomplish and say, you need to narrow this down to something you can actually research in the time that you have. And because so so subjects are really big and I went really big in the beginning. I was totally screwed it up and didn't do it right at all, but really learn how to write a paper. Well, I, 
I'm sure that the way they're doing it now, because they're doing editing and going through it and you know, defending it and stuff like that, I'm sure it's really good too. But I learned Absolutely. the same thing as you: how not to write a paper taught me how to write a paper. It was great. Yeah, and and one of the instructors, I don't remember his name, but I probably had the he he let me call him, and my first paper, he went through it with me. Um, I don't think I had to rewrite it, but he wanted to talk about it, and. He went through almost line by line with me, and he allowed me, it was over the phone, and he allowed me to record it. So the other three years, every time I started, I would just go back to that, listen to it again, and and do what he said. Um, and it really helped teach me that process. And, you know, I, I had a uh, fellow lieutenant that I was working with that had no college, and uh, we no interest in an EFO, didn't feel like he needed it. And honestly, I don't think he needed it. Uh, he, he was really good at tactics and aggressive and operations, and he was phenomenal. But I told him, I said, you know, let's say you're a 6 out of 10 as a lieutenant, uh, and I'm a 2 out of 10 as a lieutenant. I feel by me going to college or me going to the EFO program, maybe that brings me up to a six. Uh, so do, does everybody have to have that to be successful? No. But for me, it did help me grow and get closer to that end result. Um, and, and Mike, I'm going to go into another one of the things I wanted to talk about, if you don't mind. Uh, right, that's why same, we're here, buddy. That's okay. What? This same guy... Um, Good friend of mine, we were, so in this house, we, uh, uh, there were two lieutenants and one captain in this station. And so he and I had a room that most officers had their own room, but in this case, the two lieutenants share. And so he and I became really good friends, a lot of good leadership conversations we had. And he was senior to me by about three years in the department and promotion. And I kept looking at myself as a new lieutenant and thinking, gosh, this guy is so much better than me. I'm, I'm, I don't live up to this. I hope three years from now I'm where he is. And, uh, and then one day it dawned on me, you know, to be a good leader in a, a good officer, I think it boils down to, besides your leadership philosophy, which we talked about, I think you need three aspects, uh, to be in the fire service, uh, as a supervisor, leader, uh, you need administrative skills. We've all seen that one person that just can't do administrative. So that's one area I think you need you need to be proficient. And we can fix that if you're not, because we can we can practice writing, um, counseling. We can practice writing proposals, white papers for the department. We can help somebody build their administrative side. Uh, second one is operations and tactics. Uh, there's some people that are just phenomenal at that. It's like they woke up. Uh, uh, put the bottle down, the, the, the bottle of milk as a baby, and all of a sudden they're great tactics <laughs> leaders, not, not the whiskey bottle. Uh, but if, if you're not, we can, we can work on that because we have the fire academy. We have local state uh, uh, Department of Fire programs that has classes. We, we have classes within the station. The Internet is so great now. You can learn how to do anything nowadays, uh, and there's so many videos. So the first two, we can, we can uh, through training and mentorship, we can overcome 
deficiencies in those first two. The last one isn't as easy. In, in, in my opinion, the last one is interpersonal relationships, uh, how you get along with people. Now, this person I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, he was great at administrative, didn't really want to do it, but he was great at it. Uh, he was great at, um, at tactics and operations, but he was horrible, horrible in talking to citizens, horrible talking to the subordinates, horrible talking to other officers and challenging and fighting every tooth and nail. And uh, uh, we were talking one day and uh, a officer made a huge, just a, a, a big bonehead mistake, which later on I made, uh, un unfortunately, but made a, a bonehead mistake. And this guy was, uh, my friend and this guy were competing against each other for captain. And my friend says, oh, he'll never make it. He did this. He made this mistake on the fire scene. I said, yeah, but he gets along with people. And the higher rank you go, the more you have to interact with people outside of the fire service. The more you have to interact with politicians within the city. The more you have to act, interact with citizen complaints. Right. If, if you can't master that at some point, you're not going to progress. Um, and it's the hardest to teach. Uh, again, the Navy started with those young people and changed the culture of the Navy by starting back in the 90s with E-5s. The fire service doesn't do that yet, uh, that I know of. Uh, I'm sure there's some departments out there that have embraces. But the interpersonal relations is one of the hardest ones to teach, and, and we don't do a good job of it. So... There's my spiel. I wanted to talk about those three things. That's a philosophy on what I think it takes to be successful in the fire. I would love to tag on to that because one of the ways we changed our hiring process and promotional process of my department was to measure for empathy. Because you can train them if they have mechanical skills. We can show them how to do the job, but you can't train empathy into people. They have to care. I had to hire people who wanted to pick up Mrs. Smith who fell down. That's why I needed to hire, who also had mechanical capability and can be trained and were aggressive and all that kind of stuff. But trying to find people who have empathy uh, was very important. You know, one of the key factors in, in a different way of looking at how you hire in your fire service. And I'm sure they're doing the same thing in the military where they are identifying people with the right overall makeup. And it used to be you wanted that aggressive mechanical person. And you still need aggression, you still need mechanics, but you need empathy even more because it is really a people game. So, yeah, I think it's a great lesson. All right, Brian. You mentioned it before, so I'm going to ask. <clears throat> what was the biggest nugget that you took from the fire chief? Because you said that after all those meetings that you had all those nuggets, what, what was the... Because, listen, not a lot of people have an opportunity to interact with the fire chief of a metro, number one. And number two, not a lot of people would take the opportunity to ask. So what's give us a nugget that you recall. Well, um, I so I, I think one of the biggest things that I learned is how little – it surprised me how little – um, authority or ability they had to make the changes they wanted to make. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and I kind of experienced this myself. You know, I, I wanted to make chief in the Navy. I did. It was a goal. I reached it. And then the senior chief and master chief, I never really was adamant. It was great, and I appreciate it. But it was interesting. You, I kept thinking in the Navy, if I get one more step up, I'll have less people telling me what to do or <laughs> less people controlling me. Uh, you know, they say in the Navy, an E-5, a second class, is the best rate because you're technically, you're doing the technical work for your, your rating and you got a bunch of people over you, but nobody's really focusing on you and you really don't have a lot of leadership uh, requirements on you. Well, I'm here to tell you, I made Master Chief. There's only three Master Chiefs in my unit at the time. One of them we never see. Me and another guy, the other guy's deployed. So I'm running things and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm the top guy enlisted. I only report to the commanding officer. And let me tell you, it was one of the worst positions as far as freedom. That's uh, great. I, I thought I was going to be able to change so much. But in reality, when you only have one person looking at you and he only has one person to look at, that takes up a lot of his time. Not that I did anything wrong or he was a bad guy, but that's the way it was. So in dealing with these fire chiefs... It's really interesting. In dealing with these fire chiefs, uh, I recognized, you know, the fire chief is beholden to city council. The fire chief is beholden to the financial officer for the budget. The fire chief is, is beholden to the city manager, The uh, some of the uh, town uh, and uh, civic league presidents. There was so much wind taken out of their sails. They had these great ideas on how to move our department forward, but there were so many roadblocks politically to affect that. And, and it really was an eye-opening experience to see all the things that they had to process through to make something happen. Uh, so that was, that was kind of... Uh, and then the bigger thing is, they were both of them were so good at allowing me to pick their thought process on a problem, no matter what problem it was. Hey, why'd you make this decision? And and I would say, hey, why'd you why'd you decide to fire Bob? And and they would say, well, I took this into consideration, took that into consideration. I was like, oh my gosh, I never thought of that. I never thought you would have to take that into consideration. Oh, that's a good point. I never thought about this state law or whatever. So it was really interesting perspective to, to, to see their perspective, to see yeah. their thought process. And I will say one of those fire chiefs was just so happened to had been my battalion chief earlier in my career. And he did that as a battalion chief questioned me. Uh, I, I'll remember it. I remember it vividly. He was one that kind of paid attention uh, to the computers in his office when he was doing his other stuff and he would see a call was about to come in before it actually hit on the brass. And he comes out one day and he's like, Ren, you got a car fire at such and such. So I whistle for the guys, yell for the guys over the PA, whatever. We jump on the truck. He's gone. And I'm thinking, I'm a newer lieutenant. I'm like, why in the world is the battalion chief going to my car fire? What's he checking on me? What did I do wrong? Right. You know, so all these things are going through my head. So we get there. That guy parked back the battalion chief's vehicle, and we had just gotten GoPros, and he said it 
to the perfect spot to video us coming in and us going to do this car fight. So uh, we we do our thing before we're even done. You know, somewhere pretty much wrapping up. He leaves. And we do the rest of stuff. Get back to the station. It's like, hey, Ren, let's go. Let's go watch this video. It's like, okay. So we go in there, and he's like, hey, why'd you park there? And I said, well, uh, I said I I had the operator park here because I was going to park here, but if the tank gave way on that car, the fuel would have run downhill to where our apparatus was. That's why I parked it. He's like, oh man, I didn't think of that. He goes. Good on you. And then he asked me something else. He goes, hey, did you do a search of the interior of the car? I'm like, no, why would I do a search of the interior of the car? The guy was standing next to me. But the the compartment was completely filled with smoke. What if we'd have had a patient in there? I didn't. I've never been taught that before. Never heard of that. Uh, So he was really good on a lot of calls, not just with me, but pretty much his whole team. Asking questions, asking guys on medical calls, hey, why'd you give that drug? That drug is second in line. And they're like, well, this patient was a diabetic, so we needed to give this before we gave that uh, because the patient was in cardiac arrest. And and so I learned from him to challenge people for their thought process so I would learn and grow from it, uh, not challenge people. And, and, and the, the, the strong leaders... Don't take that as challenging you personally. Right. They recognize that you are trying to learn their thought process because you respect that thought process and you may teach them something in the process. So so both of those fire chiefs allowed me that. Uh, and and I, I I really I really appreciate it. Now the the OPS job was very interesting, uh, but it's really tough. When you have to ask your friend a question that they don't want to have to tell you this, the whole truth about what happened. Uh, that's hard for me. It's hard for them. Uh, and then, you know, in the fire service, the rumors go rampant. Uh, and before I went in there, I was part of it. Hey, man, what's going on with Johnny? Hey, what Johnny do? After after OPS, I was like, I don't care. I don't know. I don't <laughs> want to know. I have seen way too much and heard way too much. So. Hey Mike, um, it looks like we're getting close to time. I got we like are. three. I got like three other things I'd like to talk about, and and they won't take long. Uh, just because I may not ever have a opportunity like this to share some things I learned over the years. I I would truly appreciate you doing that. I got a couple of things written down here, but I want to hear from you. So okay, the, the, so the floor one is of yours. The first, one of the first is mindset. Um, I remember us. Uh, being in Rota, Spain, and we used to go to this Irish bar, and uh, at the time, O'Grady's. Yes, O'Grady's. It's still there. Um, and the post and the 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 naval chart. I can, if you look online, you can see that it's still up. Is it really? Uh, yeah. So, anyways, um, I remember waking up like the next. You know, the, <laughs> we're, we're supposed to get up to go to work, and. And I wake up like two hours before I have to get up. And I think to myself, oh, man, I got to get up in two hours. And, and, and I was miserable. And then I couldn't fall back to sleep. And then I'd wake up and I'd feel like I, wasn't, I didn't get enough sleep. And then one day I had a mindset change. And I thought, you know what? That's just as easily. I get to sleep two more hours. I get to sleep two more hours. 
And then I'd roll over, I'd fall asleep, I'd wake up refreshed. And it was just something that by accident happened. So I try and and utilize that in my everyday life. Uh, and there was a saying in my department, a lot of people would say, every day is an assessment center. And basically it's complaining. Hey, you know, this guy hit a car. Every day is an assessment center. I got to do paperwork now. Well, <laughs> that that is true, but it's also an opportunity to learn and grow. So I would try and take, hey, my guy hit something, no problem. We'll figure it out. We'll correct it. But this is an opportunity for us to grow. This is an opportunity instead of an assessment center every day, uh, instead of a drag. This is an opportunity for me to learn how to do disciplinary paperwork properly. Yeah. This is the ability for me to document, learn how to document properly a vehicle accident. Right. Um, it, it, it gives me an opportunity to go over driving skills with everybody within the station, not just that person. So I try and at work, I have working with these contracts. I will, I get this, this guy at Yahoo comes to me and says, Hey, I want to do this, this, and this, and has no clue. And I have no clue. And I'm like, at first I might go, Oh man, this thing's going to be a pain. But then I think, wait a minute, I've only got a year in this job. And this guy's like, hey, man, I'm sorry. I know this is a pain. I know this is going to cause you a lot of angst. I'm like, dude, you're training me. Yeah. I'm going to go through this problem. We'll figure out how do we get to yes? How do we get to yes to get you what you need or want? How do we get to yes? So as long as I am learning from this experience, it's not a waste of my time. It's not a waste of your time. You need this piece of equipment. I need to learn how to get you this equipment. This is a special situation. So that's how I try. Uh, and and it's just a mind change in my everyday life. So I, I want to share that with people. So as you're a new officer, you're going to get a lot of these things that just all of a sudden you just weigh you down. Oh, man, Bob was late for, for uh, work today. I got to counsel him. My chief says I got to counsel him. I got no clue. It's a chance to learn, grow, help. Uh, and help try and figure out if Bob's got some kind of problem you can help him with. Yeah. So that's one of them. Um, another one um, is an incident on an interstate. So my career, uh, I, I was uh, I, I was two, three years on the street riding an ambulance, riding an engine. Uh, I wasn't in state. I was in uh, two piece stations, an engine and a medic uh, stations most of my early career. Didn't have any experience on a ladder. Uh, then at three and a half, I got assigned to the heavy tactical rescue. Spent six years on that. Um, so I make lieutenant. They send me to a ladder company. I don't know nothing about companies. I I got signed off to drive it over a cycle once, but I don't know anything. But my driver has spent his entire career on the ladder. So we go on a call on an interstate. And as we're pulling up, he's like, you need to do this. You need to do this. Hey, don't forget to do this. And now my dander's starting to get up because I'm thinking to myself, who the hell is this guy? I'm the lieutenant. He's telling me what to do. And then it dawned on me. And I'm going to switch to the Navy. In the Navy, it's very well pushed, embraced that the chiefs run the Navy. Yeah. You might have an ensign that just came out of the, the Naval Academy that knows nothing about 
whatever division you're working in, let's say it's Bosa Mays, that division officer has to lead these people. He has to rely on his chief to help guide him until he gets the experience and education. In the fire department, I don't know if we utilize that as much. At least my department did. And I even had a captain, I explained this to him one time, and, and he scoffed it off and, and uh, uh, didn't embrace it. But So now, that's what I was taught in the Navy. So now I go back to this position. I'm on this interstate. Uh, this guy, my driver, who knows this stuff, and I know he knows this stuff, backwards and forwards. Uh, oh, by the way, he outscored me on the written, but on the assessment center, I beat him, and he dropped to the point where he didn't get promoted. So, so what do you think I did when I found that out? I helped him get. I gave him my assessment center stuff. I helped him study for that, and lo and behold, up he goes. And then I had to get a driver, which, uh, which I lost this guy, which was a phenomenal guy. But, but anyways. So we're on this scene. My dander's getting up. He's telling me what to do. And all of a sudden, I think to myself, you dumbass. This dude's trying to help you. Why are you getting your dander up? Take his help. He's trying to protect you. Accept it. He knows what he's doing. He's not trying to steer you wrong. And I think as, as young, and this is where I think those new lieutenants that didn't have that Navy experience, to make those mistakes in the Navy, uh, make those in our fire service. I was lucky enough to have made that mistake in the Navy. And this time it was starting to happen. And then I recognized to utilize my technical experts. And the last thing I want to talk to you, Mike, I think I've told you about this before. When I first became a leader, I thought I had to know it all. I thought yeah. I had to be the technical expert in everything. And then one day I'm watching Star Trek, the original, not this new stuff. I'm watching <laughs> Star Trek, and I came up with this leadership model. Uh, the Star Trek know, leadership model? Star Trek leadership model. I know I've told you about this. So, yeah, live long and prosper. <laughs> so, so uh, for, for Michael Benson, my thing is, if you watch those old Star Trek things, Captain Kirk was an idiot. I mean, he really was. I, I, I like William Shatner. Good, good actor. From, uh, but he was an idiot in those roles. He wasn't the smartest medical officer, smartest engineer, smartest He cheated on officer. the test, for crying out loud. He yeah, he cheated on the test. Uh, but, but he Kobayashi was smart Kobayashi Maru or whatever it's yeah. called. Yeah. <laughs> but he was smart enough to realize that he didn't have to know all that. He put the right people in the right positions, and he relied on them. Just like I relied on this operator of mine to help me through this vehicle on the interstate uh, call, uh, you have to understand as new officers, you don't know everything. You may have been the best firefighter, most uh, aggressive firefighter, but now you're in a different role. And you need to utilize the people that you work with that have those specialties, whether it's a paramedic, a hazmat, a tech rescue, and I think it's more important the higher you go, because the higher you go in the service, the less you're doing those technical skills. Uh, so you need to rely on those. So that was it, Mike. Those are the a couple, I think, throughout our wait, conversation. I got to push back on the best TV leader to follow. Okay. Ted Lasso wins. Oh, <laughs> I love Ted Lasso, yes. Okay, so if you haven't, you have got to go get Apple. I hate, I'm not endorsing Apple TV Plus, but... 
that's how you get to watch Ted Lasso. That dude knows nothing about soccer, a.k.a. Soccer. football in, in Europe, but he knows how to lead and motivate people. So if you want to learn how to lead and motivate people, watch what Ted Lasso does, because all he does is make the people that follow him successful, which is the definition of leadership. You do make other people successful. That's your job. My job as a fire chief, I told my people this, and they all thought I was nuts, and my bosses told me not to say this. I wanted to be unnecessary. My job was that they did, they knew what they were doing, and they were supported so well that they didn't need me there. And when they had a fatal fire within the last few years before I left, and my young officers who had been recently promoted, who did not get a lot of fire experience, we did a lot of EMS, not a lot of fire in my, in my area. And those guys handled that fire perfectly and i got called in late because they the dis, dispatch messed up didn't call me uh so i got to do pio because they love always shoving pio off on me uh which was great because they hated that but <laughs> they handled a fatal fire like they they could have screwed this up a million ways and they didn't just squared away ran that thing wonderfully and i'm like there it is i knew i could i could leave i had prepared the people to, to follow after me to know what they were doing in the situations that don't come up very often. And they handled it very well. So yeah, leadership TV style. I got to recommend Ted Lasso. If you haven't seen it, you, you need to watch it and watch it for the leadership style. There's a whole bunch of comedy and fun stuff anyway. Uh, especially for people our age who get all the references to television and music from uh, when we were kids. So Ted Lasso, I would say, is a, a better leader example than uh, William Shatner, but that does show your age, Ren. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, be curious. In that Ted not Lasso, judgmental, exactly. Be curious. Not judgmental, which, by the way, is not a quote from Walt Whitman, but it's, it works anyway. So, oh, there's I have like eleven Ted Lasso leadership lessons uh, that that you can teach. It's, it's just it's really good stuff. All right. So last thing I got, Ren, because I I know we need to wrap up. Would you please give us the four rules one last time, your leadership philosophy? Just because I think they're important. My leadership philosophy is do the right thing. Look out for your people. And if you're doing number one, you've already got two covered. Make all orders your own. Uh, If the chief tells you to come wash windows you don't go tell your subordinates, hey, I don't want to do this either, but the chief chief said we got to wash the windows. No. As the company officer, that is now your order to give to them uh, because otherwise you undermine yourself in the future. Uh, and then the last one is kill your enemies with kindness. Don't Love let that. them control your attitude. Uh, let it go. Uh, work on – now I'm not saying be a complete pushover and let somebody steal the questions off of your test. But what I am saying is don't let don't let them continue. Don't let your attitude be swayed by them. Uh, let it go. You move on. You keep doing what you know is right. And, and I think things will come around. Michael, anything for Ren? No, but I'm trying to find my Ted Lasso leadership note that I saved on my phone. Because, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's. It's it's one of those things that I like to tell people that is really hard for people. And this is really hard for people in general. Forgiveness is a superpower. The ability to let somebody who wronged you and forgive them serves you way more than them. Because they don't even know if you forgave them. You can forgive them without telling them. Yep. But by forgiving them, 
you are able to unburden yourself. It is a superpower. So yeah, I've got the I've got the Ted Lasso lesson. There it so is. Don't, number one, believe in yourself. Number two sounds very similar to Ren's first one, but doing the right thing is never the wrong thing. All people are different people. See good in others. Forgive first. That's why that's, forgiveness is a superpower. Tell the truth. Winning is an attitude. Optimists do more. Stay teachable. Happiness is a choice. And, of course, somebody added on their uh, added one to that, and I lost it. I don't know where it is because people started responding to it. Oh, well. Anyway, uh, yeah, and then, of course, you know, uh, the Walt Whitman quote. There's not really a Walt, Walt Whitman quote. Yeah, Ted Lasso, uh, great leadership lessons. So Sorry I went on, off on the tangent. No, I love By that. the way, logistics. Ren, you're going to love this because you're already running into this if you're doing supply for uh, government, for federal. The Guam, the base on Guam got hit with a, twi- a typhoon. The whole island lost power except the base. The base supported the rest of the island. Why didn't the base lose power? I know why. Because it has a microgrid. It has its own little miniature grid that can island. When the rest of the grid goes down, it can still operate. That microgrid, that energy system, we need to put on every fire station, police station, school, library, service department across the country so that we also can have resilient power that's locally generated and stored because that's the only way you're going to charge a fire truck that needs megawatt charging uh, 24-7, 365, multiple times in the same shift. Or shift change police department. Already got six, seven, eight police cars. I'll want to charge at the exact same time for 15 minutes, three times a day. You got to create megawatt charging systems. The only way to do it, microgrids. And the military already has them. Naval bases, army bases, uh, all over the, the world. They're putting in uh, microgrids to support them. So that's part of the command consulting electrification mission is to solve that logistical problem of how do we provide a megawatt of power for 15 minutes at any time, 24-7, 365, whenever, and more than once in a day uh, so that you can have electrified uh, mission-critical fleets. It's pretty cool stuff. So if you want to talk about that, let me know. Well, you've got my email. That's why we want to contact Command Consulting LLC. Ren, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Mentors on Fire podcast. Check us out. If you got any questions, if there's a guest you'd like to see uh, on the show, please reach out to me at malora at mentorsonfirepodcast.com. Uh, that's all we got. Good night, everybody. Good night. See you soon.